Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies. David Grand's 2017 book, Killers of the Flower Moon, and the new Martin Scorsese film based on the book tell a disturbing and true murder mystery. It's the story of how the Osage Native American nation in the 1920s gained enormous wealth when oil deposits were found on their reservation. It's also a story about how the Osage, then the world's richest people per capita, became the most murdered. The Osage were being shot and poisoned in staggering numbers, and the murderers, it turned out, were local whites who had befriended and in many cases married their victims. It's an absorbing murder mystery as J. Edgar Hoover's FBI took on its first major murder investigation, but it's also a dark journey into the hard-edged racism that allowed whites to view Native Americans as subhumans who ought to be relieved of their newly acquired wealth. In the Scorsese adaptation of Grant's book, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, the story is told from the perspective of one of the killers, Ernest Burkhart, who's played by DiCaprio. Burkhart was married to one of the wealthy Osage women, Molly Burkhart. David Grant is a staff writer for The New Yorker and the winner of a George Polk Award. His other nonfiction books include The Lost City of Z and The Wager, a tale of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder, which came out in April. I spoke to Grant in 2017 about his book, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI. Well, David Grant, welcome to Fresh Air. This story begins with a woman who is really at the heart of this tale, Molly Burkhart. Tell us a bit about her. Uh, Molly is a fascinating uh, person. Uh, she was born in the 1880s, growing up in a lodge, uh, practicing Osage traditions, speaking Osage. And then within about 30 years, um, because of oil deposits under her land, becomes one of the wealthier people in the United States and is living in a mansion and married to a white husband, um, has a couple children. And she's really somebody who is straddling not only two centuries, um, but in many ways two civilizations. Right. And then something happens to her sister, Anna. Tell us about that. So her family uh, becomes a prime target of a conspiracy. And one day in 1921, her sister, Anna Brown, uh, disappears. And Molly looks everywhere for her, searching along the prairie. Uh, a week later, Anna Brown's body is found in a ravine. She's been shot in the back of the head. And it is the first hint that Molly's family has become a target of this conspiracy and that her tribe has also become a target of this conspiracy. Molly is married to a guy named Ernest Burkhardt. Uh, one of the last people to be seen with her sister Anna is her husband Ernest's brother Brian Burkhardt. Anna was known to be a heavy drinker and um, questions arise about him. Yes. He, because he was last seen with um, Anna Brown, he is initially questioned. But at least early on, there is no evidence or witnesses connecting him to the crime other than the fact that he had dropped her off at her house earlier in that evening. Um, but this is a case where 
Um, there's a great deal of intrigue and mystery early on, and nobody at first knows who was responsible for the murder. Right. A, a terrible, dramatic crime and a mystery around it. But let's back up a bit here and talk about the Osage Nation. I mean, like many Native American tribes, they were uprooted and pushed around from one reservation to another. But they ended up with a distinct advantage in, in their negotiations with the U.S. government. What happened there? How did that happen? So, yes, the Osage were typical of um, many American Indian nations. They were driven off their lands. Uh, they once controlled much of the Midwest of the country. In the 1800s, uh, President Thomas Jefferson referred to them as that great nation and promised to treat them as their friends. Uh, but within a few years, they began to be forced off their territory. Over two decades, they would have to cede more than 100 million acres of their land. They were eventually bunched onto a reservation in Kansas, um, and then once more were under siege. And in 1870, they needed to find a new homeland. And an Osage chief had stood up and he said, we should go to this territory. It was then Indian territory. It would later become Oklahoma. We should go there because the earth is rocky and infertile and the white man won't be able to farm there and they'll finally leave us alone. So the Osage purchased this land. It was about the size of Delaware. They resettled there. Um, by that time, there were only a few thousand left. The forced migrations had depleted their numbers. Many of them were starving. Um, and then it turned out that, lo and behold, uh, this land was sitting upon some of the largest deposits of oil then in the United States. Right. And a fascinating little moment is that they send a lawyer, John Palmer, to Washington as they're negotiating this arrangement with the U.S., and he gets some. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the Osage... Um, tribe um, was allotted. And what allotted meant this um, happened to many of American tribes in that period where the federal government was forcing them to break up the reservations, break up their communal way of life, um, turn them into, quote unquote, private property owners. Of course, this was an easier way for settlers, white settlers to get their land. But the Osage, because they owned their land, they had more leverage with the U.S. government because they bought they it. Very, it wasn't simply a reservation given to them, right? Exactly. Yeah. They bought it. They had a deed to it. Um, and they had very shrewd negotiators, including this man, Palmer, who was described by one U.S. senator as the most eloquent Indian alive at that period. And they were able to slip into their treaty for allotment a very curious provision at the time, which essentially said that they will maintain the subsurface mineral rights to their land. And at that time, the Osage had some hint that there was some oil, but nobody thought they were sitting upon a fortune, and they were able to hold on to this last bit of their territory, which they could not even see. So each of the Osage families that owned a plot of land uh, had what was called a head right, which means what? So, yeah, so there were only about 2,000 Osage who were registered on the tribal roll, and each one of them received a head right. And what a head right was was essentially a share in the mineral trust. The Osage wanted to make sure that they maintained all the subsurface territory together. And so what they did is they gave each person a head right, and you could not sell or buy a head right. Um, it was collectively controlled by the Osage, and each one had a head right or a share. And what that meant is they would receive a check um, for any royalties or any leases that um, derived from the oil money. And so how helpful, how beneficial was this to the Osage? Well, 
early on, when uh, in the early 20th century, uh, there was just a little bit of oil, and the Osage would receive a check every four months. Initially, it was for maybe $100, and then it grew to 1000 But then it continually grew. And by the 1920s, the Osage collectively had accumulated millions and millions of dollars. In 1923 alone, the Osage received what today would be worth more than $400 million. They had become the wealthiest people per capita in the world. Wow. How did whites in Oklahoma react to seeing Native Americans with all that money? The public, the whites, not just in Oklahoma, but across the United States were transfixed by the Osage wealth, which belied images of Native Americans that could be traced back to the first brutal contact with whites. And reporters would go out and describe how they lived in these terracotta mansions, how they had chauffeured cars, how they had servants, some of whom were white. There was a great deal of both envy and prejudice um, and eventually outrage. And eventually um, the whites would try to find ways to get their own hands upon this money. And and it's worth noting that – that I guess particularly Osage women, their control of these assets were restricted in some ways, weren't they? Yes, not just Osage women, all Osage um, or all full-blooded Osage. So the government in really looking back just an outrageous system decided somehow that the Osage uh, were not capable of handling their money. Now, you have to remember, this is the 1920s and the period of Great Gatsby. White oil men are blowing fortunes and going bankrupt. And 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 yet, members of the United States Congress would sit in these uh, mahogany panel committee rooms and literally debate as if the nation's security was at stake, scapegoating the Osage about their wealth. And they imposed restrictions. They literally imposed a system where guardians, white guardians, were placed in charge of overseeing how the Osage spent their money. This was a deeply racist system, and it literally was based on the quantum of Osage blood. If you were a full-blooded Osage, you were deemed, quote-unquote, incompetent and given a guardian who oversaw your wealth. Okay. That said, there was a lot of wealth controlled by the Osage. Did intermarriage among the Osage uh, tribe and whites increase as this happened? Certainly. By the early 20th century, um, because of this kind of clash of cultural forces, so many whites were coming into the area because of the wealth, so many oil workers and oilmen. Um, Many of the old traditions of the Osage were disappearing at this period, and there was a great deal of intermarriage. Molly Burkhart um, married uh, Ernest Burkhart, a white man who was very typical of the kind of people who was kind of drawn to this area because there were these kind of wild boom towns at the time. So we had a situation where Molly Burkhart, this woman who was a wealthy member of the Osage Nation, married to a white man, Ernest Burkhart, discovers her sister Anna Brown has been shot to death and found in a ravine some distance away, a horrible crime. Um, Who would investigate this kind of murder at the time? There was a great deal of lawlessness then in the United States and particularly in this region, which was really the last remnant of the Wild West or the frontier. So you had a local lawman, you'd have a sheriff, but the typical sheriff back then um, had no training in scientific detection. And there was also a great deal of corruption back then. It was very easy for the powerful um, to buy the law 
uh, to tilt the scales of justice. Molly Burkhardt um, obviously pleaded for justice and crusaded for justice, um, but the white authorities really did nothing early on or very little. There was also a great deal of corruption, so it was very hard to know who to turn to, who you could trust, um, who would stop these crimes, who would truly investigate them. Now, you use the word victims plural. Uh, Anna Brown was not the only Osage who died under suspicious circumstances. Give us a sense of what else was going on. So not only was um, Anna Brown murdered, um, uh, not long after um, Anna died, Molly Burkhart's mother, who was kind of one of the last of the Osage elders who still practiced many of the old traditions, uh, became mysteriously sick. Her body seemed to wither and become more insubstantial each day. Nobody could pinpoint what was happening. And within two months, she was dead, and evidence later surfaced that she had been poisoned. So within just two months, Molly Burkhardt had lost her sister to a gunshot, her mother to poisoning. And not long after that, um, Molly had another sister, a woman named Rita Smith, who lived in a house not far away from Molly, and one night, um, there was a loud explosion in the community. It was about 3 in the morning. Molly Burkhardt heard it. She got up as she went to her window, and she looked down in the direction of where her sister's house had stood, and she could see a large orange fire rising into the sky. It literally looked as if the sun had burst into the night. And where her sister's house had been, uh, there had been an explosion. Somebody had planted a bomb under the house, killing everyone in it, including Molly's sister Rita, including her, Rita's husband and a white servant who lived in the house. These are just the murders we're talking about now in Molly Burkhardt's family. There were other murders happening throughout the community, other Osage being targeted. Um, many shot. Uh, others died of mysterious illnesses, right? Henry Rowan was another guy who was murdered. Yeah. Yeah. So there were many shootings. Um, Henry Rowan was uh, another Osage who was found in his car, shot in the back of his head. One of the most prevalent and uh, means of murder and of, of killing the Osage was poison because, because of the lack of training. Even though scientists understood toxicologies for poison, the local police forces didn't. And so it was very easy to slip someone a poison. There was one champion steer roper, Osage, who um, got a call one night. He went out of his house. He came back and suddenly collapsed, frothing, his whole body shaking. Um, somebody had slipped him what was believed to be strychnine, which is just a, a horrible poison. It makes your whole body convulse as if with electricity. You slowly can't breathe, but you're conscious throughout until finally you mercifully suffocate. Um, so this was just one of the many means of um, targeting the Osage in these very systematic and brutal ways. Molly Burkhart and relatives of the other victims would turn to private investigators. <laughs> there are some real characters among them. You tell some fascinating stories about that. Yeah. So one of the things that happened back then because, you know, we think of ourselves as a country of laws, but these institutions back in the 20s in the United States were very fragile. There was a great deal of lawlessness. And because of that, justice was often privatized, that if you had money and resources, you had to turn to private investigators. So Molly, who had a, an enormous amount of courage because by crusading for justice, she was putting a bullseye right upon herself, but she did, and she issued rewards, and she hired a team of private investigators. 
these private investigators were often, though, um, sordid characters. Often they had criminal backgrounds. Um, they were also often susceptible uh, to corruption. And you often didn't quite know who they were working for, who they were leaking to. Just to give an example, the um, governor of Oklahoma eventually sent in his top state investigator, a guy named, uh, his middle name was Fox, which always seemed appropriate. Um, he had been a longtime private eye, had a criminal history. History. He shows up to look into the killings. He quickly uh, takes a bribe um, you know, from a bootlegger. Um, he's then arrested. The governor quickly pardons him, and then he goes and commits an unrelated murder. So you get a sense just of the quality of, uh, of, the, of the legal establishment who is uh, supposed to be solving these crimes. So the Osage looked to the federal government. Let's get a federal investigation of this. And they enlist the help of a guy named Barney McBride. Tell us that story. So, yeah, so um, Barney McBride was uh, an oilman in the area, a white man, um, the Osage. He was a friend of the Osage. The Osage trusted him. And so they asked him to go to Washington, D.C. to try to plead for help. And Barney McBride went. He showed up in Washington, D.C., and he brought with him a Bible and a pistol. That night when he arrived at his boarding house, he received a telegram, and it said, be careful, then that evening, he walked out of the boarding house. He was abducted. Uh, somebody put a bag over his head. The next morning, he was found in a culvert in Maryland. His head had been beaten in. He had been stabbed, I think, at least 20 times. His body had been stripped naked. It was clearly a warning. And the Washington Post later reported what had become increasingly evident, which was that there was a conspiracy to kill rich Indians was the title of their article. So this was now a national story. This had now become a national story. And what it showed, though, and what is so important, is the reach and the power of the people who were carrying out these murders. Here they were able to track and follow a man all the way to Washington, D.C., had enough information to know he was going and had the power to follow him and to kill him you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away uh, from Oklahoma. And it terrified people. There was an attorney, local attorney named W.W. Vaughn, a man with 10 kids, looks into yes. things, thinks he has some evidence that might be helpful. And then what yes. happens to him? Yeah. So W.W. W. Vaughn was uh, a local white attorney. He had 10 children, as you said. And um, he was considered honorable, not corrupt. Um, he had rushed. He had been, began to try to kind of fill in this void, this kind of corrupt void to see if he could try to catch the killers and stop them. He went to Oklahoma City to meet with a, an Osage who was dying of suspected poisoning. Um, before he went, he told his wife that he had put money in a safe uh, for her in case anything happened to him. And he had also stored away um, the evidence he had been gathering because he was afraid for his life. He went to Oklahoma City to meet with this um, Osage Indian who was dying of suspected poisoning. And... Uh, he spoke to them. He got documents from him. He then called the local sheriff and said, I've got enough evidence uh, against one of the killers. I'm coming back. I'll be on the train. Um, but then he never arrived. He never arrived in Osage County. Disappeared. People began to look for him. Boy Scouts, local Boy Scouts took up the search. Bloodhounds ran through the prairie. His body was eventually found 24 hours later lying along the tracks. He, too, had been stripped naked. He had been thrown off the speeding train, and his neck was broken. And when his wife the next day went to 
the safe where he had stored his materials. Everything had been cleaned out. So word of this spread. We're now over 20 victims at this point. What was the impact on the daily lives of members of the Osage? Well, by now, this was known as the Osage Reign of Terror. There were at least 24 Osage who had been murdered. Several people who had tried to catch the killers themselves had been killed. And there was a genuine sense of terror. The Osage would hang lights around their houses so that at night they would be illuminated. Doors were locked. Children were not allowed to wander the streets. Many Osage moved to California. Um, Osage would later refer to this as a diaspora. Um, It was a, a real time of terror. We're listening back to my 2017 interview with David Grant, author of the book Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. The new Martin Scorsese movie based on the book, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, opens today in theaters nationwide. We'll hear more of our conversation after a short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short- or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. Hey, this is Seth Kelly, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Molly C.V. Nesberg, digital producer at Fresh Air. We co-write the weekly Fresh Air newsletter. It's recaps of the week, staff recommendations gems from the archive, and a glimpse at who's coming on the show soon, all in one place. It's also a fun peek behind the scenes. What goes into the producing and editing of the interviews, and a chance to meet the people who make Fresh Air. You can subscribe by going to whyy.org slash fresh air. You'll hear from us soon. Now, back to the show. Let's get back to our 2017 interview with David Grant, author of a book about one of the biggest serial murder cases in American history. Grant's book was adapted for Martin Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon, opening today in theaters nationwide. The story is set in the 1920s, after oil was discovered on the reservation of the Osage Nation, and members of the tribe became wealthy. Local whites befriended them, and in some cases married them, and targeted them for their money. The Osage were shot and poisoned in staggering numbers. It was the FBI's first murder investigation under Director J. Edgar Hoover. So this becomes a federal investigation. What was the state of federal law enforcement in the day? 
So the Osage issue a tribal resolution where they plead for federal investigators to come in, those who will not be tainted or connected to the local power structure. And eventually a very obscure branch of the Justice Department, which was then known as the Bureau of Investigations, which would later be renamed the FBI, take up the case. It was a very fledgling period with federal law enforcement. Um, the Bureau, the, um, the, the Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, had been formed in 1906 under Theodore Roosevelt. Um, but it had only a few investigators. Um, many of them were not very well trained. Um, the same problems that infected local enforcement were still uh, plaguing the Bureau, where you had criminals who were often investigators. Um, the Bureau had had in the early 1920s one of the worst con men. Um, in the history of the United States was working for the FBI. <laughs> and they also had very limited jurisdictions over crimes, um, the FBI back then. Uh, they could deal with escaped federal prisoners, smutty books crossing state lines, but they also had jurisdiction over uh, American Indian reservations, which is why they got jurisdiction over this case and why it became one of their first major homicide investigations. So the guy running who had just taken over the Bureau at the time is none other than J. Edgar Hoover. This is in the 1920s. He was a young man, and he wanted to remake the FBI. He had a particular profile of the kind of man he wanted to be an agent for the Bureau of Investigation. What was he looking for? Well, in some ways, he was looking for someone like himself, who he had never been a, an investigator himself, had never been a criminal detective. He was a master bureaucrat. Um, he was looking for agents who were college-educated. They would refer to them as kind of Boy Scouts um, who looked – had very clean-cut images and were very presentable. Uh, needless to say, were generally white. Um, he didn't like agents who were too tall because he didn't want them to overshadow him. But what they often lacked, at least back then, was real experience investigating real criminals. Um, and so that was one of the problems the Bureau had. Um, there's a part of the story that's not so well known of an initial effort. Tell us about that. At one point, they released an outlaw, a man named Blackie, very appropriately, um, who they hoped to use as an informant. And they took him out of jail, um, and he was supposed to work for them. Instead, he slipped away, robbed a bank, and murdered a police officer. And you described there was another kind of lawman who he would employ at times, loosely described as cowboys. What are we talking about? Yes. Yeah, so in this case, um, there was a bunch of kind of wilder frontier lawmen who were very experienced, including a man named Tom White. Um, these were men who were kind of struggling to adapt to the new bureau, to adapt to new scientific forms of detection, which were slowly emerging, such as fingerprinting, handwriting analysis. They have to suddenly uh, file paperwork and wear suits, things that none of them were accustomed to. But they were very experienced lawmen, including a man like Tom White. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. Tell us about his history. You know, Tom White is in many ways like Molly Burkhart in that he is a transitional figure in this country. He is somebody who was born around the same time um, on the frontier in a log cabin in Texas. He was part of a tribe of lawmen. His father had been a frontier lawman, a local sheriff. He watched his father when he was just a little kid hang a man, who a convict. Um, he grew up at a time and became a lawman at a time when justice was often meted out by the barrel of a gun. 
And then by the 1920s, when he has this case, when he becomes an agent, he is trying to learn all these new modern methods of detection, such as fingerprinting, such as ballistic analysis, learning how to file reports, which he can't stand. He has to wear a suit and a fedora where he had once ridden on a horseback with a 10-gallon hat. (laughs) So Hoover personally selects this former Texas Ranger, Tom White, to lead the investigation into the Osage murders. And White assembles an interesting team to help him. What kinds of men does he pick? What are their methods? Uh, Yes, so he puts together an undercover team of these cowboys. They were old frontier lawmen. He realizes given the danger, given the fear in the area, given the corruption, the team will have to go in undercover. And he recruits one frontier lawman who will pose as a cattleman. He recruits a man who once sold insurance and now will sell insurance um, as his fake identity when he's in Osage County. And perhaps most interestingly, he recruits an American Indian agent. There are no statistics about how many American Indian agents were in the Bureau at the time, but I suspect he was the only one. And this team then is sent in undercover. And, of course, they do not represent the team that um, of kind of agents that Hoover was touting as college boys. None of these people had college educations or whatnot. In this period in which whites and Osage had a lot of social contact, a lot of intermarriage, many whites that were trusted by members of the Osage nation, uh, this FBI agent, Tom White, and his team begin to – discover some pretty sinister stuff going on. Generally speaking, what are they finding? What they begin to discover is that there is a enormous criminal enterprise to swindle Osage money and that the system of guardians, for example, these white men, they were always men, usually men, often prominent members of society. They were lawmen, prosecutors, businessmen, uh, bankers, were systematically stealing um, and skimming from the Osage money. And they begin to also realize that there is a complicity of silence. And it becomes apparent that they are now moving into a realm in which it is very hard for them to know um, who they can trust and that the very power structure within the community is more than likely complicit within these crimes. Two white men were arrested and brought to trial, people with access to resources and money. And a big question arose was, regardless of the evidence, would a jury convict a white man for murdering an American Indian? Just explore that with, with, with us for a moment. Yeah. I mean, what is amazing is that – and this was an open question. I mean, it was it was literally asked and, and – there was a belief that that white men would not be convicted for these crimes and that white jurors would not find um, them guilty. And the challenges that Tom White and his men faced were just enormous, almost Herculean, in that, one, there was enormous corruption and the people who were being charged had enough power to buy jurors to buy witnesses, to murder witnesses, to make witnesses disappear. The case shifted from a question of who did it to can you actually convict them? 
And because of racial prejudice, it was an enormous challenge. And many people believed that the locals would, would never convict um, fellow white men for killing uh, an Osage Indian. Uh, what happened in the first trial? And the tragedy and shocking to Tom White was that it ended in a hung jury and evidence later revealed that there had been a elaborate conspiracy to obstruct justice, including buying a juror. So plenty of jury tampering at all. Jury tampering. Yeah. And, and maybe most heartbreaking is that this involved men who had become very close to even married Osage women and had betrayed those relationships. These were deeply intimate crimes and it's what makes this – um, so barbaric. Um, these were crimes committed by people who the victims trusted, in many cases thought they loved. And it involved a level of betrayal, an almost Shakespearean level of dishonesty, of hiding your face, hiding the conspiracy. Um, and for someone like Molly Burkhart to have to reckon when she begins to discover that the very people she knew and often trusted were the very people who were targeting her family. Um, I could never fully fathom what that must have been like for her. It was, in fact, Molly Burkhart's own husband, Ernest Burkhart, who was found to be a, a part of the conspiracy. He was found to be a part of the conspiracy. It was somebody who Molly thought loved her. Um, she had two children with him. And she learned that he was one of the many willing executioners. And she had to sit through the trials and listen to the evidence presented and learn the secrets of her husband, that the secrets of this murder were right inside her house. And it was utterly devastating uh, to her, as anyone would imagine. David Grant is the author of Killers of the Flower Moon. We'll hear the rest of our conversation after a break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at stearnsandfoster.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. You know, it's fascinating because you spoke with grandchildren of this era, and they would bring you documents and, in some cases, stories that they had heard. Uh, of crimes that we didn't know about. You want to pick one? Tell us about. It. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, Mary Jo Webb uh, was somebody who I met. She's in her eighties now. She's one of the Osage elders, and um, I got to her house, and she had pulled out a box of documents, and she told me about um, the death of her grandfather, who had been run over, 
who had been poisoned. And she had spent years doing her own investigation, gathering evidence, um, trying to um, pinpoint the killers. This went on in so many families I met with, and they would give me the documents. They would give me the trails of evidence to pursue. What you begin to realize um, the deeper you dig is that this was not a crime about who did it as much as who didn't do it, that there was a culture of killing taking place during this period and that there were scores, if not hundreds, of murders. And one of the questions that that occurred to me as I read this was it was so remarkable that so many of these men would target Osage women, um, that so many of these Osage women were open to these relationships and trusted these men. Do you have any insight into that? No. I mean, they lived in the community um, and they presented a certain face and concealed often what they were about. Um, the white man. This was a, yeah, yeah. yeah, the white man. And this was a time of great um, instability within the Osage Nation because of so much wealth. And it was a period where many of the traditions were disappearing. Um, and there was a certain kind of unmoredness to the society. And it probably made um, this more possible. What is so hard to fathom is that the crimes involved a calculating quality where you had to befriend these people. You had to pretend to love them. You had to sleep in their house. In some cases, you had children with them. And then you systematically targeted them. Um, I've never encountered crimes like that before. And there was a complicity to these killings because they involved not only the perpetrators, they involved morticians who would then cover up the crimes. They involved lawmen who then would not investigate them. They involved neighbors who would never speak out, reporters who would not dig into the crimes. There were so many willing executioners. There were so many people who were either directly profiting from these crimes or were silently complicit in them. And that's why there were so many of them. That's why they went on for so many years. And that's why uh, so many killers ultimately escaped justice. And, and, you know, when you speak to these surviving members of the Osage Nation and you see the pain that they still feel generations later from this this series of crimes. And when you think about how many white people were complicit in it, it makes me think there's another book to be done about descendants of white people and what stories their grandparents might have told them because surely some told stories and surely some felt some guilt about it. You know, it's a what's interesting and is in many ways the story of America. Um, there are descendants of both the murderers and descendants of the victims who still live in the same community and Mary Jo Webb, who's an Osage elder who I spoke to, you know, said we try not to hold those descendants responsible. She said in many cases they don't fully know even what their ancestors did, um, but we live side by side. I thought that involved a certain level of forgiveness and understanding. One descendant of a murderer um, I spoke with sent me a note um, at one point, and he said, I'm very ashamed. Um, this was a descendant of Ernest Burkhart, and said, I'm very ashamed of what my ancestors did. And he said, if you speak to the Osage, will you please tell them that for me? Um, but what is part of America is that you have these descendants living side by side in the same communities. 
And one of the most powerful things um, in all the research was meeting with the descendants. I met with the descendant of Molly Burkhart, Margie Burkhart, who is the granddaughter, is a wonderful woman, and told me about the crimes, told me about what it was like growing up without any cousins and aunts and uncles because so many members had been murdered, told me about what it was like for her father who had grown up in this house as a little kid where his mother was a victim and his father was the killer. Um, Her father literally referred to Ernest Burkhardt as old dynamite. That's what he called his father because uh, he was participating in the blowing up of one of the houses. And you realize when you speak to someone like Margie Burkhardt how much these crimes still reverberate in the present, how much this history is still living um, in the present. And what became of the wealth of the Osage? Obviously, a lot was stolen in these crimes. What happened to the well-being of the, of the nation? So, so much of the Osage wealth was stolen. Um, it's hard to even put a number on it, but hundreds of millions of dollars was swindled. And then the Great Depression came and a good deal of the money was lost. And gradually, a lot of the oil was depleted. And so, while some of the Osage still receive royalties from oil money, um, it's nothing like the fortune that they had once had during uh, the 1920s and the beginning of the 20th century. And is the population... Uh, of, of the Osage Nation about what it was or more or less? There are about 4,000 who still live in the area and there are about 20,000 members who now belong to the nation. And it's a very vibrant nation. It has its own uh, government. It's extremely resilient. As one person told me, yes, we were victims of this murder, but we don't live as victims. And I think that's certainly true when you visit Osage Nation and you meet with the Osage and you see what a remarkable um, um, place it is and uh, the strength of its government institutions. And they've taken um, enormous efforts to protect themselves uh, from this kind of criminal conspiracy again. David Grant, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. David Grin is a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. Martin Scorsese's new film based on the book opens in theaters nationwide today. Coming up, we'll hear what our critic Justin Chang thinks of the film. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices, and they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Next, we'll hear what our film critic, Justin Chang, thinks of Martin Scorsese's adaptation of Killers of the Flower Moon. It tells the story of the serial murder of Osage Nation tribespeople for their oil rights in Oklahoma during the 1920s. The movie stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, and Lily Gladstone, and it opens today in theaters. Here's Justin. Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon mostly unfolds in the 1920s when some of the richest people in America were members of the Osage Nation in northeast Oklahoma. Having discovered oil beneath their land years earlier, the Osage live in beautiful homes, 
own expensive cars, and employ white servants. As in his earlier period dramas like The Age of Innocence and Gangs of New York, Scorsese brings a highly specific bygone era to vivid life. But this story of enviable wealth is also one of exploitation. The Osage don't control their money. The U.S. government has assigned them white guardians to oversee their finances. Many Osage women are married to white men, who are clearly eyeing their wives' fortunes. The movie, adapted from David Grant's 2017 book, is structured around one of these marriages. Leonardo DiCaprio plays Ernest Burkhart, a handsome, slightly feckless World War I veteran. He's come to Oklahoma to live with his uncle, William K. Hale, a wealthy cattle rancher and beloved community pillar played by Robert De Niro. Soon Ernest finds work as a driver for Molly Kyle, a quietly steely Osage woman played by Lily Gladstone, whom you may recognize from the series Reservation Dogs and movies like Certain Women. In this scene, Ernest flirts with Molly during one of their rides home. He told me he was, he was going with Matt Williams for a time. You talk too much. No, I don't talk too much. Just thinking who I got to beat in this horse race, that's all. I didn't realize this was a race. I don't care for watching horses. Well, I'm a different kind of horse. <laughs> what was that? That's how you are. I don't know what she said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. <laughs> <laughs> While Molly initially resists, she eventually falls for Ernest. They marry in a visually stunning wedding sequence that shows the panoramic sweep of Rodrigo Prieto's cinematography and the exquisite detail of Jacqueline West's costumes. But even as they settle down and start a family, Molly begins to lose hers. Her mother and sister succumb to a mysterious illness. Another sister is found shot to death in the woods. Many more Osage victims turn up, suggesting an intricate criminal conspiracy at work. Grand's book unraveled that conspiracy gradually, through the eyes of Tom White, a dogged investigator for the FBI. He's played here very well by Jesse Plemons. But the movie diminishes his role considerably and reveals what's going on pretty much from the start. White men are systematically murdering the Osage for their head rights, their legal claims to this oil-rich land. What's so unsettling is not just the ruthlessness, but the patience of this scheme. Whoever's plotting these chess moves, arranging marriages, devising murders, and controlling who inherits head rights, is playing a very long and elaborate game. Killers of the Flower Moon is very long itself at three and a half hours, but it's also continually gripping. Scorsese and his editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, are masters of the slow burn. Whatever's going on, it's clear that De Niro's Hale is at the center of the mystery, not just because of the cunning twinkle in his eye, but also because he bears the darkly iconic weight of the actor's past roles in Goodfellas, Cape Fear, The Irishman, and other Scorsese dramas. DiCaprio 
also a Scorsese veteran, is equally good as Hale's gullible lackey, who gets drawn into this cold-blooded plot. When Molly falls very ill, a chill runs through the entire picture. Could Ernest really be killing the mother of his children, a woman he genuinely seems to love? Molly herself doesn't know what to think. Gladstone's captivating performance makes you feel her turmoil, as well as her unrelenting grief as her family members keep dying. Scorsese wants to honor those victims, and to show how they fit into the long, brutal history of Native American displacement and death. After spending decades exploring America's mean streets, he's addressing the country's original sin. Much of the pre-release buzz has focused on the care that he took, working with Osage consultants to present an authentic depiction of indigenous life. Even so, some have asked whether a white man should be telling this story, a question that Scorsese seems to acknowledge in one powerfully self-implicating scene. To my eyes, the movie does have a framing problem, but it's mainly because of its jumble of perspectives. Scorsese gives just enough attention to Molly and the other Osage characters that I wish he'd centered them even more. But the movie's true interest seems to lie elsewhere. Killers of the Flower Moon may be a fresh departure for Scorsese, but it also finds him on perhaps too familiar terrain, transfixed as ever by the violence that men do and the trauma that they leave behind. Justin Chang is the film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed Martin Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon. On Monday's show, we'll speak with Atlantic staff writer McKay Coppins. His new book is generating buzz with revelations about what Republican leaders privately think about Donald Trump. It's based on Mitt Romney's reflections on his political career and how he thinks extremism took hold within the GOP. The new book is Romney, A Reckoning. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm Dave Davies. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club. NPR Wine Club members have contributed over $1.5 million to helping create a more informed public. B21. Join the charge at nprwineclub.org slash podcast.